You know, this morning we're going to return back to John 10. And if you recall, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You know, he spends a lot of time speaking to them. And uh, he has been using a figure of speech, or what we oftentimes call a parable, about a shepherd and his sheep. And, you know, the reason he's speaking to these Pharisees is because he healed a blind beggar. And yet these men did not believe the testimony of the blind beggar. They've kicked him out of the temple. And it motivated Jesus to teach them about the sheep and the shepherd. Now we learn in verse 6 that the Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying. And so where we are now is we're, we're in this section of, of John 10, 7 through 18, where Jesus is explaining himself. And he really even takes that figure of speech even further. Last week, we looked at the first couple of verses of his explanation, and we heard Jesus identify himself with one of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. He said, I am the door of the sheep. In fact, in verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So this morning, we're going to look at the second great I am statement that he makes in, uh, in this chapter. And to uh, lead us into that part of the scripture, verses 11 through 15, we're going to go to George and Sue Brant. So Brant, take it away. Good morning, church. I am Sue Grant. This is my husband, George, and we have been a member of Colonial, and this has been our home, church home for 35 years. And over those 35 years, we've enjoyed doing various ministries together. And while we really miss being with our church home at Warnell on Sunday mornings and the various opportunities we have there, like working as greeters or being in children's ministry, um, we are very appreciative that we can worship online. And we have enjoyed worshiping outdoors on the Overland Park campus. And we appreciate being with our life group once again and being a part of Harvester's Outdoor Ministries. So as those things continue, we are grateful. And we look forward to the day when we can all be back together again, unrestrained, worshiping and fellowshipping together as one body at Colonial. And the scripture today is out of the book of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's been a privilege to read the word of the Lord to Colonial Presbyterian Church. I want to thank George and Sue for reading the scripture today. You know, George and Sue are some amazing people. I love them very much. George is a pretty avid bird hunter, and he recently lost his best dog, uh, Tuco. So say a prayer for George and Sue. It's hard to lose a dog, isn't it? I, I know we all, many of us had that experience of losing a pet. All right. Well, today, uh, the title of my message is The Shepherd and the Hireling, and I have three subtitles. Number one, The Altogether Lovely Shepherd. Number two, The Predictable Hireling. And number three, the joy of knowing and being known. So first, the altogether lovely shepherd. 
I have a question for you, just to get started. When you think of God, what comes into your mind? You know, the great theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's very insightful, and I think it's true. So, once again, here's the question. When you think of God, what comes to your mind? What picture comes to your mind? Many people think wrongly about God. I don't mean to be judgmental or condemning, but if you think of God in a way that is contrary to the way that God has revealed himself in Scripture, you are thinking wrongly about God. And that will inform every aspect of your life and your worldview. For example, if you think of God as a crusty old dude with white hair who is perpetually irritated and just looking for a good reason to send people to hell, that is going to color the way that you pray, the way you teach your children, and the way you think about old people. <laughs> All right? If you think of God as some hypothetical, metaphysical first cause who has no personality, no emotions, and no interest in the affairs of people, then that will inform your morality, your attitudes, and your convictions regarding the meaning of life. If you think of God as a, a man-made construct such that you believe there, there is no God, no creator, no judge, no savior, no, well, then your worldview begins and ends with you and your short time of life. There is no heaven, no hell, no good, no evil, just existence and then nothing. What comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. It is the foundation upon which we build our entire worldview. So I know some of you, you claim that you don't care about God, you don't actually ever think about God, but here's what we know. <laughs> this is pretty well documented. Human beings are helplessly spiritual creatures. We think about God a lot, and that's because we want to know how to hear God questions. So what we think about God serves as a starting place in answering all the questions that all people think about. You know, as we've observed throughout our study of John's gospel, the Bible presents multiple images or, or, or ways to think about God. Perhaps, though, the most prominent picture in the Old Testament that is consistently carried on through the New Testament is the picture of God as our shepherd. We have referred regularly to Psalm 23, where David writes, The Lord is my shepherd. And that image is consistent in many books of the Old Testament, including Numbers, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah. When the ancient Israelites imagined God, not only did they picture God as their almighty creator and judge, they also pictured God as their loving shepherd, a good shepherd. And they saw themselves as the sheep of his pasture. Nowhere is the imagery of God as the shepherd of Israel so beautifully portrayed and described as in the 23rd Psalm, which helps us to see the Lord, our shepherd, as present, loving, our leader, our protector, our provider, our champion, our host, and our hope. If you haven't done so already, I challenge you again, commit yourself to memorizing the 23rd Psalm. There is no better image to carry in our minds all day, every day, then Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Now, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, we also find 
hints and clues of the one who's coming. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one born of a virgin, a child born unto us, the son of David whose kingdom will never end. And many of these messianic prophecies are written by the prophet Isaiah. But there's one in particular that I think is incredibly important as we think about God in light of John 10. Listen to this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Listen, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So the one who's coming, the savior of Israel, will tend his flock like a shepherd, right? Now consider the profound meaning and significance when Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says here in John ten fifteen, I am the good shepherd. In this moment, Jesus not only identifies with the prophecies of the Messiah, he makes a claim of himself that would be equivalent to Isaiah 40, verse 9. Behold your God. Jesus does not claim to be a shepherd. He states quite clearly, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd of Israel has come in the flesh. He walks among his sheep. He has the name that is above every name. And of course, his name is Jesus. Alex McLaren writes about this. He's a New Testament uh, preacher and, and writer from long ago. But I love the way he captures this. John 10, 11, John 10, 15, twice Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Here's what he says. I am the good shepherd. Perhaps even Christ never spoke more fruitful words than the, these. J- just think about how many solitary, wearied hearts they have cheered. And what a wealth of encouragement and comfort there has been in them for all generations. The little child as it lays itself down to sleep cries, Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. And the old man lays himself down to die, murmuring to himself, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I am the good shepherd. No preaching can do anything but weaken and dilute the force of such words, and yet, in all their sweet and homely simplicity, they appeal to every heart. Isn't that beautiful? I know what he said about the preaching part, but I'm still going to preach on it a little bit. So I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of God, but here is a powerful image that is accurate and personal. Jesus, the good shepherd. I would ask you to look upon him in your mind's eye. Imagine him, the lover of our souls, the savior of mankind, the redeemer of all that has been corrupted. He is our shepherd and he is the good shepherd. Shepherd. What, what do we mean by good? I'm so glad you asked that question. It's time for the geek with the Greek. All right. There are two Greek terms that are frequently translated as good in the English language. The first Greek term is agathos, which refers simply to the moral quality of a thing. So in other words, honesty is good. It's not evil, right? That's agathos. However, the second Greek term translated as good is the Greek word kalos. 
And kalos has a deeper, richer meaning. Kalos refers to something that is altogether lovely, good to the core, and beauty, a beauty to behold. It's not just that Jesus is good at being a shepherd or that he is a morally good shepherd as opposed to a morally evil shepherd. Kalos says that this shepherd is beautiful. Beautiful in the way he is, in the way he cares for the sheep, not just because of his abilities, but especially because of his heart and his character. All right, I got a question for you. How many of you grew up watching Little House on the Prairie? Just raise your hand. All right, men, do not be shy. Okay, you can raise your hand too. It's okay to admit, I enjoyed Little House on the Prairie. I watched it a lot when I was a kid. My wife loves Little House on the Prairie. She bought the entire DVD series, and she tried very hard to get all of our kids to watch the Little House on Prairie, because it's a, it's a great show. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, you're very young. Thank you for being here today. Um, this was a series about Laura Ingalls and uh, her life growing up in the late 1800s in a little town called Independence, Kansas, right? So this is kind of our Kansas show. It was aired in the 1970s, and the stories featured simple, wholesome lessons from a simpler time in our nation's history. Anyways, I'm wondering how many of you remember old Doc Baker. Remember Doc Baker in the Little House on Prairie? Doc Baker was the only doctor in the little town of Independence, Kansas, and he was the epitome of the good doctor. Remember that? He was good in that he was loving, sacrificial, moral, and faithful. Doc Baker was there to deliver the babies, treat the flu, take out a bullet, and comfort the dying. Doc Baker wasn't just good. He was gentle and beautiful in his goodness. That's Kalos. And that's the picture presented here of Jesus, the good shepherd. What makes Jesus so beautiful, lovely, and good? Look at what follows next, beginning with the end of verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Question. How many of you would die for sheep? Right. Uh, if it comes down between me and a bunch of sheep, the sheep are going down, right? <laughs> That's the way most people would think about sheep in regards to your own life. But see, if you were a shepherd, you would think of those sheep differently. If you were a shepherd, if you knew these sheep since they were baby lambs, if you named them, you shaved them, you fed them, you loved on each one of them year after year, you would feel differently. They would be like your family. Right? If you were a shepherd, you would do whatever you could to defend your sheep. And by the way, that was the law of the land for shepherds. Shepherds were expected to care for and defend the sheep. They were accountable for every animal in that flock. However, a good shepherd, the very best kind of loving shepherd, would even lay down his life for the sheep. He would lay in front of the sheepfold, as we talked about last week, and he, he would make his body the door so the sheep would be safe inside and, and the wolves would have to come through him to get to the sheep at night. And when it came to it, as we read from King David, right? He, he, he talks about this, that when the wolf came or the bear or the lion, he would face them. He would fight them, even if it cost him his life. See, Jesus appeals to this familiar imagery in the first century, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All right, 
One more little bit of Greek geekery for just a second because this is important. Our English language just misses some nuance here. Last week, if you remember, Jesus said in verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And just now we read Jesus say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now we've talked about this before, but I would remind you that there are three different words in the Greek language for the word life. So our, our language lacks nuance. The Greek language is not, and it's really important. Okay, first there is bios, which is the physical life, where we get biology, right? Then there is zoe, which is the eternal life of God known only through the human spirit. And then there is psuche, which is the mental, emotional soul, or the very core of one's being, the, the, of the person, right? Now listen to what Jesus just said, having this nuance fleshed out for us um, in the Greek. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his psuche, his very soul, for the sheep, so that they may have zoe, the eternal life of God, and have it abundantly. I hope you see that there is an exchange that takes place here. Jesus is not saying that he is a good shepherd because he's willing to die for his cause or to set a good moral example. Jesus is the good shepherd because he exchanges himself, his soul, his very being, if you will, so that the sheep might have the eternal kind of life and have it abundantly. This is what makes Jesus beautiful, lovely, and good. He loves the sheep that much. He knows each of us by name. He lays his life down for you and for me. Church, nobody, nobody could ever love you more than your shepherd. And that is what should come to your mind whenever you think about God. Amen? Number two, the predictable hireling. Now notice the, how the goodness of the shepherd stands in stark contrast to the predictable unfaithfulness of the hireling. Listen to what Jesus says here beginning in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. And cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus is clearly associating the Pharisees, the shepherds of Israel, with hirelings in the story. Unlike Jesus the good shepherd, the Pharisees care nothing about the blind beggar. Nor have they ever cared about this lost and hurting sheep who has languished outside the gate of the temple year after year. The contrast between Jesus, who will lay down his life for lost people... And the Pharisees, who rule God's people harshly and with no mercy for their own benefit, you see that contrast is beautifully captured in this comparison between the good shepherd and the hireling. Now church, in every profession, you have those who are all in, and then you have those who work only to get paid. That is the hireling. It's the difference between the school teacher who will take the extra time to create individual lesson plans for kids who are struggling versus the teacher who simply fails the students who can't keep up. It's the difference between the waitress 
who works to memorize the names of her regular customers and their favorite dishes. And the waitress, who cares nothing about her customers, is evidenced by her foul attitude and her lack of attention to the empty glasses on the table, right? It's the lawyer who looks for any excuse to bill his client $400 an hour versus the lawyer who spends her weekends doing pro bono work for battered women who can't afford to pay for the help they need to escape their abusers. Hirelings are common, but hirelings are deadly when they occupy positions of leadership. You know, in the ancient world, when a shepherd was sick or injured, the owner of the sheep might have no choice but to hire a day laborer from town who would simply agree to tend the sheep in the absence of the shepherd. It wasn't a bad gig for the most part, right? You, you hang out in the country, maybe read a good book, take some snacks, catch up on your knitting. <laughs> How hard could it be? From a distance, the hireling might very well resemble a shepherd. He might dress like a shepherd, walk like a shepherd, maybe even carry a staff like a shepherd. And if the hireling stayed out there with the sheep for a week or two, he might even fancy himself to be a shepherd. That is, until the wolves showed up. You see, hirelings can look the part of a shepherd until the testing comes, until things get hard and conflict arises. And it is at such times that courage, commitment, and sacrifice are required. And these are not the qualities of a hireling. Why? Because a hireling does not love the sheep. The hireling doesn't own the sheep, nor does the hireling fear or love the owner of the sheep. The hireling employee does not love his company or his co-workers. The hireling teacher does not love her students. The hireling lawyer does not care for his clients. He doesn't even love the law he's sworn to uphold. Hirelings care for themselves. So when the threat comes, when their loyalty, courage, and character is tested, they run, leaving the sheep to be snatched and scattered by the wolves. And let me tell you something about wolves. Even to this day, a pack of wolves will attack a herd of sheep or cattle in the countryside, and they will kill every single animal in the herd. They won't eat very much. The rest of that herd that has been slaughtered will just go to waste. You see, wolves kill. That's just what wolves do. Hirelings abandon sheep. That's just what hirelings do. So here's the picture Jesus has just painted for us. We, the flock, are at once and at the same time under a dual threat as the sheep of God's pasture. Threats from the outside, threats from the inside. We are always under the threat from the wolves that come from outside the flock to snatch and scatter the sheep. The wolves are those who have destruction on their hearts. We know we have a spiritual enemy who is Satan. The ancient liar and his minions who are spiritual wolves who hate the sheep of God. And then there are thieves and robbers who come only to kill, steal, and destroy. These are evil people, those given over to the father of lies who knowingly or unknowingly do his bidding. But at the same time, we are sometimes subject to the careless cowardice of hirelings who are inside the fold those who profess faith in Jesus, who say all the right things, they look the part, they act the part, until trouble comes, and then they flee, abandoning the sheep. These hirelings play the part that, uh, of the under-shepherd to make a paycheck, to enjoy the perks, to be called pastor, to enjoy the honor that comes with leadership. 
But when wolves threaten the sheep, when thieves sneak over the fence and try to steal, kill, and destroy, the hirelings run off to play shepherd in a greener pasture and the sheep are scattered. Many of us who've been attending churches for a long time, we, we have hireling stories, don't we? Jesus, Jesus called it. Even these very pompous, well-trained, highly devoted religious people called Pharisees, when it came right down to it, were more hirelings than they were shepherds. Church, be careful who you follow. Don't follow a hireling. How do you know the difference between a hireling and a true shepherd? Watch what happens when trouble comes. Troubled times will reveal the character of a leader. Troubled times reveals the character of us all. Amen? I'm going to take a moment to reflect personally upon this passage, if you will, for just a, just a minute. You know, every pastor who serves as an under-shepherd will tell you that this passage is haunting and challenging. Why? Because no pastor wants to fall into the category of a hireling. And yet we all know that we don't qualify as the good shepherd either. I'm not Jesus. I do believe the Holy Spirit lives in me, empowers me to do what I've been called and set apart to do as your under-shepherd. But still, pastors are both sheep and shepherds. We are Christ's representatives. We've been charged to love, care for, and feed the sheep. But then when we go home, we're also sheep of his pasture. So that's complicated. So I will confess to you that this passage regarding the hireling has caused me to do some serious soul searching this week. I have asked myself over and over again, am I a hireling? Do I tend the sheep only because I get paid to do so? Would I love God's sheep and serve them even if I wasn't getting a paycheck? Am I willing to lay down my life for the sheep of this flock that God has called me to serve, to fight off the wolves, to root out the thieves, whatever the cost? Church, I will confess that there is still some hireling in me, sadly. I have days when all I want to do is run, to abandon the sheep and start my fishing guide service. (laughs) I confess there are days when the paycheck keeps me at my post, and that is a hireling quality. So I would ask you to pray for me, that God would root out any hireling nature that is within me, that I might become a better shepherd. That said, as I reflected upon it, I also know, and I can point to many occasions, when there rose up within me a fierce love for God's church, a protective love and at times a sacrificial love. I remember just over 10 years ago when we, many of you were around then, we received a letter from our former denomination threatening to shut down our church and confiscate our property. The wolves were at the door. I remember the fierce love that those wolves aroused in my spirit for God's sheep. It was a fierce love that I saw in the eyes of many of our leaders. There was no doubt in our minds on that day, we would stand and fight to protect God's sheep, whatever the cost. And that is what we did at great cost for the better part of two years. I still feel that fierce, protective love for each and every one of you. 
I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I know that I might prod you with the shepherd's staff every now and then, but that's also part of what shepherds do, right? I love you, church, and I will do my best to be your under-shepherd along with the other pastors and elders as long as God allows me to stay in this position. But listen, we know who the good shepherd is. Amen? Jesus is the good shepherd, and we know him, and he knows us. And that leads me to my third subheading, the joy of knowing and being known. Jesus concludes this part of his teaching in verses 14 through 15 with probably the most profound statement in this entire thought unit. I mean, perplexing anyways. Listen to what he says. He doubles down in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I don't know if you caught what Jesus just said, but it is mind-blowing. He just compared his relationship with us from shepherd to sheep to his relationship with the father. He said, I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. How does Jesus know you? Just as Jesus knows the father. So how does Jesus know the father? How does he express his knowing in that relationship? Multiple times in John 17, we've seen this previously as well. He says, Father, we are one. Oneness is marriage language, right? That's where we're most familiar with it. The husband and the wife shall come together and they shall be as one. Oneness is your relationship with your very best friend, who knows you better than you know you, the one who can finish your sentences, sometimes that your spouse, sometimes some of us just have very, like the closest friend that's closer than a brother. You know, oneness in your horizontal relationships, you know, with your spouse or with your best friends, oneness means never having to fear in the relationship, never having to fear betrayal or getting blindsided because there's a safety, an intimacy, a joy that only oneness provides. Jesus enjoys that oneness with the Father. How do we know? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. I hope you get this, and I'll come back to it next week. But listen, Jesus faces the cross. He submits himself to insults, false charges, flogging, and nine-inch nails because he has complete and utter confidence in the oneness that he enjoys with the Father. That oneness is what kept Jesus from running in the Garden of Gethsemane. That oneness is what keeps Jesus on the cross so that we might be saved and inherit the eternal Zoe, the eternal kind of life that begins the moment we walk through the door, who is our good shepherd. But check this out, church. Jesus just said that his love and relationship with us, his knowing and being known with us, is just as his oneness and his knowing and being known with the Father. You think you get that? You don't. I don't. What Jesus just said is a mystery beyond my ability to grasp. But here's at least what that means for you and for me if we belong to Jesus. 
It means we never, ever, ever, ever have to worry about being betrayed or blindsided by Jesus. Ever. We don't need to explain ourselves to him. We don't have to impress him. We don't have to beg him to listen to us. We don't have to worry that he has other things on his mind when we're talking. We don't have to worry that he's rolling his eyes at us in contempt. We don't have to worry that Jesus has stopped loving us when we have been acting very unlovable. Do you get this, church? Jesus knows his own. He knows you like he knows the Father. By the way, biblical knowing means intimacy at a supernatural level. It is affection, warmth, and beauty. Biblical knowing is joy. But there's more. Jesus also said, My own know me, just as the Father knows me. (laughs) I can read your minds. You're like, what? But there's so much I don't know. I I can't see Jesus. I can't sit down with him and ask him all of my questions in person. I can't feel his arms around me. Oh, I so long to feel his arms around me. But you... You do know him. If you belong to him, you know him. You do. You know him because more and more, he occupies your thoughts every day. He informs your decisions. He stirs in your spirit. He restores your soul. You see, you know him in your heart, just as the father and the son know each other in the heart. And that kind of knowing is far deeper and more mysterious than the knowing of the intellect or the experiences of the flesh. You know him. And that is the gift of oneness. The gift of knowing and being known in the most loving, intimate, and unconditional way possible, that oneness is the Zoe. Oneness is the Zoe. Oneness is the eternal kind of life that Jesus gave up his soul for us to enjoy. And if you are his sheep, if you belong to him, that Zoe is now yours forever. The knowing and being known by our good shepherd is what changes the human heart. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. I'm going to return to this theme next week. Uh, Not next week, week after. But for now, I want you to picture him. Picture the shepherd in your mind's eye. The Lord is our shepherd. He is our good shepherd. He is our altogether lovely shepherd. He knows you and you know him. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we uh, close our time together, I just pray that the mystery of what you said the power of what you said will take root in each and every one of us. That we would come to believe and live into the truth of the gospel, which is if we are saved in Christ, we are known. And we have oneness with him through the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us 
we never, ever, ever, ever have to worry about being betrayed or blindsided by the Savior of our souls, the shepherd of the sheep, the one who lays down his life for us. This gift of Zoe, of eternal life, begins now in the intimacy and the oneness that we enjoy with you. Come what may, though the seas rage and the mountains tremble. We will be one with you. You know us and we know you. And nothing can take that away. Lord, I pray for the testimony of your church. That we would be those who follow the good shepherd. Who are not led astray by hirelings. Who do not succumb to the wolves. Who recognize a thief and a robber when we see them. Lord, I pray for all the under-shepherds of the world today, those who have been charged to stand firm, to be your representatives, to care for the sheep and feed them, to prod with the staff and to help lead them to follow you, even as we, as pastors, follow you. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us when we have hints of hireling qualities that you would sanctify us into shepherds, after your own heart. Lord, we thank you for your grace because we don't deserve oneness. We don't deserve to be known and and to be loved. Sin has separated us. But by the blood of Christ on the cross, we have been reconciled. And Lord, if there's even one here today within the sound of my voice who has not been reconciled to you, who still stands at a distance, feeling alone in the universe, I pray that they would see you as you have presented yourself in scripture. You are the good shepherd. And you said, any that would enter through the door, through you, would be saved and would be free to come in and go out and find pasture and would be known and would know in oneness. Lord, I pray this today for even one soul that they would simply repent turn from their sin call upon your name walk through the door we pray this in jesus name amen